Hey everybody, this is Sean. And this is Amanda. And welcome to Humanoids, the podcast of the comic book and graphic novel publisher, Humanoids. So today we have a fabulous podcast with the creative team of MPLS Sound, including Hannibal Taboo, Joseph P. Illich, and Meredith Laxton. But Amanda, you worked on MPLS Sound. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I was actually assistant editor on this book. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I would I would actually relate it a lot to being in a band, actually, because all of these you know unique talents had to come together and kind of find their rhythm. Um, in my case, I'd, I'd associate assistant editing with playing the tambourine, so I take no credit um, for anything. But it was really an honor to be a part of. I think. This is a really fantastic and all too poignant tale, and I'm so excited for everyone to check it out. So this is a deep dive into the music scene of Minneapolis in the early 80s, and Prince had already secured his foothold at this new direction of disruptive funk, kind of blazing a trail throughout some of the more garage-based and very Caucasian rock and roll and punk. So how do you think this is so resonant right now, Amanda? Well. I think that all of those things kind of paint the backdrop for what is ultimately a story about mainly one woman, one black woman overcoming adversity to pursue her dreams. That's a fantastic way to describe MPLS Sound. So without further ado, let's press play on this podcast. And here are Hannibal Taboo, Joseph P. Illich, and Meredith Laxton. So we are here to talk about MPLS Sound, which launches this week. This is a wonderful journey through one band of the early 80s in Minneapolis. This was a hotbed of funk and also kind of coming off of the legacy set by Prince. But I'd love to start at the beginning. So we know that the initial editor for Breeze was a huge fan of Prince. What was his initial pitch and how did it resonate with you guys? He calls me out of the blue. I'd never met Febreze. And he calls me. Somehow he gets my phone number and asks me to come to the humanoids offices. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. Uh, I take some time off my day job, drive over there. He sits me down in the conference room. He's like, I need you to fill out this, uh, this non-disclosure agreement. Okay, whatever. Fill it out. And then he starts to tell me about this huge published initiative called H1. There's going to be Omni and there's going to be Ignited and there's going to be all these superhero books. I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. He was like, great. You got all that? I'm like, yeah. He's like, forget about all that. None of that matters to you. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, then <he> <laughs> and then he goes on to say, okay, here's what here's the book that you're going to do. I'm like, but, but what about the other stuff? <laughs> and he describes this idea of a book set in uh, the 1980s uh, in the early parts of uh, Prince's uh, ascendancy to musical icon Ness. And uh, he said, because of my working in music journalism for many years, the rap pages at the source, MTV and stuff like that, he thought I was really uniquely qualified to help him out with this. And I was like, uh, okay, I mean, so we're not going to talk about any of the other stuff, though. He's like, no, no, stay focused on this book. So we did stay focused on this book, and now we have it. Now I'm very, very happy with the results. Oh, fantastic. So are you a Prince fan? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm actually literally wearing a Purple Rain shirt right now. Um, nice. Yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> Me and a, a couple of my friends snuck into a, a screening of Purple Rain in 1984. We bought a ticket to some G-rated movie. And then uh, I think I was, I would have been 11 then. Yeah, I would have been 11. And like literally just like blew my entire mind because 
I was stuck in Memphis, Tennessee, where it was super boring, like Minneapolis. And I was like, if you're determined, you could find a way out. And that was an important message for me. So, yeah, I've been very into Prince ever since then. Okay, you're into uh, Purple Rain, but are you into Under the Cherry Moon? I appreciate Under the Cherry Moon. How How deep into the wormhole of Prince can you go? I'm actually much more of a graffiti bridge person. Which is, uh, I understand, a, a hot pick to, to, to have, but it would definitely be with the, the things that he did with color and the things that he did with aesthetics, that would be more, I would take that over under the cherry rain because uh, uh, black and white just kind of, mm, my brain kind of tunes out a little bit. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And, and also, I realize that you have a history with the guitar. I, I got to hear the story. <laughs> oh. Oh, we're doing this. Okay. Yeah, right. I read about that in the tabloids, actually. <laughs> okay. When I was in high school, I was in a very, very short-lived band. And I could play electronic drums. So I had like this drum kit that was about the size of a laptop that I would be able to play. And I could play keyboards. And then one of my friends got a guitar, which is much harder to play because you have to hold it and dance and move around. So I was very happy when his sister, who was not a small person, accidentally sat on it and smashed the heck out of it. So I didn't have to bother playing that anymore. But it was for a couple of, I had to like learn choreography and try to do the steps and remember to play and remember not to fall down or fall across the speaker at the same time. I would not recommend it to anyone. So you paid the sister to sit on it is what you're saying. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) (laughs) When do we get to do that graphic novel, Hannibal, of your short-lived musical career? I think there's a story. I'm waiting for the option check from you. Uh, just let me know when they're coming through and I'll, I'll be able to help. All right, we'll talk. Uh, Joe and Meredith, how did you become enmeshed in this project? Um, so I met Fabrice through a mutual friend, um, Tom Lyle, who was Fabrice's very good friend and he was my mentor. And, um, you know, he, he passed away recently. We we're both very sad about it. Um, but at the time when I met Fabrice, um, he had kind of floated this idea. He's looking for an artist to draw this book. And it's, you know, there's going to be like a certain musician in, in it, but I can't, you know, he can't say who it is. Like he's very secret, very hush hush about it. And like me and my friends who were involved in the conversation, we would like guess, we're like, oh, is it, is it so-and-so? Is it this person? Is it that? And he'd be like, no, no, I can't say, I can't say. Um, and, you know, eventually like I did have some deeper conversations with him and you know he was interested in hiring me on to draw the book and he had me sign an NDA and only then he was like okay it's about Prince and I was like I knew it I knew it Um, (laughs) (laughs) and it was like very like fortuitous because at the time I was working on a personal project that was very inspired by Prince and the Revolution aesthetically Um, so I was like oh this is this is this is so good. Yes, please let me draw this book. Um, I also got a very similar similar feel for Fabrice that Hannibal got about like, oh yeah, we're doing H1 and we're doing this and that and you know ignited and but forget about that. <laughs> Literally <laughs> the same the same thing. Um, yeah, and then like the the rest is history. Just was drawing the book and having a great time. So can you guys give us the elevator pitch of MPLS Sound? Not easy. Okay. <laughs> So basically in the early 80s, a woman named Teresa Booker, who grew up learning to play the guitar, was heavily inspired by Prince. She was unsatisfied with her life. And after seeing a performance 
was inspired to create a band, um, really a band that was going to go against the grain of what the Minneapolis music scene was at the time. And that band became Starchild and Starchild went into a run of competitions against various bands, new bands, veteran bands with the goal of becoming Prince's band. So in an alternate timeline, they would have been Prince's band instead of the revolution. Why they did not become what the revolution became, where they lie in their secret history within our actual history is the story of MPLSA. Got it. Very cool. I want to know a little bit from your guys' perspective, because I knew what it was like from my end of things, but what were, were some of the beautiful and challenging elements of working on a fictional story, but that's set in a very real world with real people and trying to honor the, the reality and the magnitude of the phenomenon that was Prince while still bringing in this new story and these new characters that resonate. All right, I'm going to jump in with that one. And Amanda, you may remember this unless Fabrice shielded you from this and just left the fun for me. I so. was shielded by very little. Oh, oh okay, okay. <laughs> so the fir- in the first, in, in so, you know, I was brought on really to take what Hannibal put down and kind of galvanize it. So mm-hmm. the first draft that I did, Prince didn't speak. Yep. Right. Because I didn't think I was allowed to do that, understandably so. Uh And so Fabrice sent an email within that email, basically said, well, why is Prince a deaf mute? And I said, because I didn't think I could put words in his mouth. And he said, you can. And I said, "Okay, that's that's a whole other thing. But then it was like, "Okay, that's not something you can abuse because Prince. So. It was really a matter of having him say as little as possible and thus whatever he had to say was as important as possible. Yeah, I I actually imagined when everyone was working on this that like when they went to sleep at night, they were sitting below the controversy poster and Prince was at all times staring over you and like watching over the work um, because it (laughs) it is a tough thing to be, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I do feel like Prince is more of an energy than a person. And I do feel like that energy is still transcendent. And it, I do feel like it was around this project. I mean, for me, I think, so things started to crystallize when the pages started coming in from Meredith. And there's a thing that happens in comics where one person is doing part of the process. And then when they see another part of the process, it inspires them to kind of approach their process a little differently and things like that. So through the different drafts, I was heavily inspired by her work, especially the double page splashes, which were basically something right out of the birth of MTV. And I'm 51 years old. So I remember a before MTV and after MTV when MTV stood for music television, those double page splashes and the style and the energy really spoke to the vibe of that time. And I mean, Hannibal's story, like Hannibal's legit when he talks about when you would go to a movie theater 
but you would never go to just see one movie. You would pay to see one movie, but you would then sneak into another one or another one before you know it, you would walk out seeing three films. But when it came to Purple Rain, that was the only film I needed to see that day, right? Because that's mm-hmm. just such an experience. Like, I don't need to see an Arnold Schwarzenegger blow him up after this. <laughs> right? It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I need to go home and wish I was Prince. I um I I hope I'm not monopolizing with all the questions, but you mentioned Joe Meredith's double page spreads, those beautiful splashes, and I remember when this project was initiated, a huge, you know, I don't want to say problem, but something we had to confront was how do we make a music graphic novel with no sound? And we were all kind of brainstorming about how to articulate that visually. And what I just want to know, Meredith, what that experience was like for you, because the end product, I mean, it's so sensory. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that like going into drawing a book that is about music is incredibly challenging because it's it's a very visual medium. There's no sound involved when you're reading a comic. But I think the benefit of working on this project is that we're working on like a genre and a era of music that has a very distinct visual style. Mm-hmm. And so like, if you can try to like hone in on what kind of those iconic images and, and like the vibe of that image can kind of like invoke a nostalgia in people and make them like remember the kind of music that we're trying to draw a comic about. I think that's like, really the the easiest way to describe that process yeah definitely I think um it's just a testament to your artistic skill that um I mean there were even some iterations where there were musical notes or lyrics kind of included while they were singing and ultimately I mean most of these are even wordless and I think that that's just really beautiful I just want to compliment you again I'm sure your authors are very proud. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I, I do I, remember at times in the script, they would be like, oh, maybe the lyrics will be kind of floating in the air or there will be notes. And I kind of like the decision to exclude those and let the reader kind of superimpose their, their own imagination in those pages. Yep, that was a great choice. I mean, Agreed. I, 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 think, I think at some point I'm going to have to get high-res files and just get those printed out as these like big vignettes and put them in my office wall. I mean, one thing I really loved about them that really speaks to character is that Teresa was always happy when she was performing. No matter what happens in a story, when she's in one of those double piece flashes, she's in the zone, she's always smiling. Mm -hmm. She's untouchable. And that seems very real to me um, as, as a creative. Like, I think that's something for any artist, right? You're a writer, you're an illustrator, um, you're a chef. There's a time when you, you are untouchable. And I felt that in those pages. So you guys unleash a pretty thorough backing band here between James and Danny, Slim, Lizzie, and Ellis. It's interesting because we get hints at their personalities, but I'm curious, which of these backing band members do you relate to the most? Like if you were going to be in Star Child, who would you guys be? Ellis. 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. You are Ellis. Oh, wow. Wait, and Ellis is kind um, of the cocky bass guitar player. No, Ellis is Teresa's brother. Right. But he's the bassist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, I, I wouldn't say he's cocky, but, but he he's is protective. Yeah, it, that's exactly that's exactly what he is, right? Um, and in many ways, he's over it, which is like, uh, yeah, I, I remember he's based on this guy I went to junior high school with, who literally was like the tallest, biggest guy in our entire school. He was six three in eighth grade, and uh, yeah, so he's based very specifically on him. So yeah, when I think about this band, I'm like, yeah, he's he's the guy I would be because he was the one. You know who is most uh, into the nerd stuff. He was he he, he didn't even want to be in the band, and she kind of had to blackmail him into it. And I, I really appreciate his character a lot. Absolutely, Meredith. How about you? Oh, I think it probably would be Lizzie. Um, there's just something like so enigmatic about her. How she just kind of like sits in the background and observes, and then occasionally she'll chime in and say something like kind of catty when like the man, the band members are kind of like a butting head. She's like, okay, then you know, <laughs> like what are you gonna do? I thought she was very cool, um, and I liked, yeah, I just kind of like drawing her a lot. Like even as she's not like a forefront character, and I, I, I enjoy like that aspect of her as well. Well, she was also interesting because she was someone who was never inspired by the fame. She was very much skill mm -hmm. and talent based. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How about you, Joe? Um, I would say real talk on Teresa. And I mean that because, you know, I, I even said this in an interview, when Fabrice came to me with this project, I was at a point in my life where basically someone tried to gaslight me into believing that I was less than I was. And so the desire to, to get up and fight, I felt that in her and I channeled part of me in her and she had qualities that I admired. And so the idea of fighting against the system is quite frankly, something I've been doing for all of my career in comics. I kind of felt that. I kind of felt that with her. When people read the story, they're going to see she goes through her ups and downs. And they're also going to see that sometimes when you get what you want, it's not what you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And that is something I've definitely experienced in life. So I would say, I would say her. And I'm, gl and I'm glad Lizzie has fans. She's, she's kind of a, She's 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 kind of a dear one, and I and I, and I know that part that Murdoch's talking about. I like that. There's a point where someone just goes off lip, and Lizzie's like, "Well, I know why I'm here. So if you got a problem, you can just leave." Yeah. <laughs> right. I like she's got... <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is a spoiler or anything, but in that scene too, she's like in the background, like miming playing the piano. Like exactly. she's always practicing. She's always on her game. Yup. Yup. So yeah, I that's think, cool. I think that's what's so cool about about this story is that you know you have this really incredibly powerful lead. Teresa is just a powerhouse, a real force to be reckoned with. But every character still has their space in the story, and I I remember thinking it was really impressive, especially the way everything came together. That none of these characters seem static. Like even though they're playing at the stereotypes of this time and of music in general they all have heart and that must have been 
a bit difficult to, to tap into and balance within the scope of this. I was just going to say one thing that I, uh, and, and I, I say this a lot, every time I'm writing anything, I have for every character that I do a very lengthy official Marvel handbook style entry <laughs> of the character. Like pages <laughs> and pages of backstory and detail about them. So for me, when somebody says something, every line of dialogue is informed by this. You know, so I know I know what their shoe sizes are. I know what their favorite song is. I know who first punched them in the face. These are all details I know about every character that I write. Um, and and seeing that gives you the opportunity, even in small spaces, to drop in. Oh, here's a gem. Oh, here's a gem. Here's a gem. And through that, the characterization can shine. Yeah, well put. Well put indeed. Uh, I do want to talk about the research and the very Marvel handbooking degree of detail that you put into this comic because it was interesting as I was reading, I'd research the figures and the bands and then I'd go down a wormhole of, you know, Wikipedia and old YouTube videos for vanity six and lips incorporated. Um, and even non-funk bands like the replacements. And so I was going to ask, how would you summarize the literal MPLS sound outside of Prince? Like what was the larger social movements and inputs that informed this? Wow. I mean, from my perspective, one of the things that I learned is, and this surprised me, I didn't realize that the Minneapolis sound was primarily dominated by white male rock. And there was a company called Twin Tone that basically signed most of the bands. So Prince and what he put forth was really going against the grain. And interestingly enough, he brought influences from the Stones and the Beatles and all these other sources, but he was able to synthesize them into something that was unique and defiant. When you talk about the replacements, they're a necessary part of the atmosphere. You can't talk about the Minneapolis sound without them. But in thinking about, well, what kind of bands will, will Star Child go up against? There's an interesting irony here where it's not simply black versus white. Sometimes it's you just came on the scene and you're going up against a veteran, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're going up against Lips Inc., who was here before you even conceived of Star Child, before Star Child was a germ in the back of your brain. So there were different kinds of battles that these competitions had to represent. I, I can't fathom a show in which Lips Inc. would play with the replacements and what the crowd would look like. <laughs> right? It's, in, yeah, it's interesting yeah. you mentioned that. It's, uh, Prince went on tour uh, and he opened for the Stones and he had a very bad experience. It did not go well for him at all. Uh, it was very early in his career, before most of his stuff was on the radio or before any of uh, the video notoriety that we now take for granted that even existed. And they threw things at him. They uh, called him homophobic slurs. Wow. I mean, it was a really bad experience. And Prince took that and was enraged. He was like, you know, he's <laughs> never going to let anything like that happen to himself again. So he dropped off that tour. But as Joe said, he did take the Stones' influence. He had a very specific aesthetic in mind. And this is honestly part of the, the feet of clay thing that uh, he had a very specific aesthetic in mind. He's like, this is what I can put out that will sell to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, Brown Mark, that means not you. Unfortunately, Teresa Booker, that also means not you either. And that means right. <laughs> that kind mm -hmm. of specifically 
uh, colorist thing that he proliferated was, I mean, from a commercial standpoint, he was right. America was ready to accept that kind of Vin Dieselish racial ambiguity coming across screen, yada, yada, yada. But from another standpoint, he's also putting forth very colonial mind states that have caused a lot of damage to a lot of people over the years. So there are good elements and bad elements to it that are sometimes difficult to reconcile. I believe that the good outweighs the bad, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean I'm going to turn a blind eye to the bad. Yeah, it's definitely understandable. But I mean, that also kind of leads into my next question in that this book has this wonderful undercurrent of breaking past the status quo and these legacy influences with Teresa transcending both, you know, this mainly white rock scene with male gatekeepers. Uh, And we're kind of seeing some of those themes play out today. Why do you think Minneapolis tends to be the stage for some of these struggles? One thing that I learned uh, that was very important in my research is that in the 1970s and 1980s, about a third of all the cassette tapes that came out anywhere in the world were manufactured in Minneapolis. Wow. Uh, I, came up with the, I came up with the idea that uh, Teresa and, and uh, Ellis would find a job at this plant, and I forget the name of it now, but it's, in the, it's in somewhere in the book or in the notes, uh, that was in South Minneapolis is where these cassettes came from millions and millions of cassettes flying out of the city. So a lot of bands would come specifically to Minneapolis uh, as in support of these things. It was a, a, a foundational hub for a lot of the tours that you would see, which is where we got First Avenue, which is where we got a lot of the venues in that area that ultimately became you know, iconic in the way that we think of a CBGB and things of that sort. So uh, that sort of stuff was it's ironic that this manufacturing hub also became this very strong musical hub because of the natural talent there. And like I said, in some other places, I've, it's often made me wonder, what are we missing in Des Moines, Iowa? What are we missing in Biloxi, Mississippi? If Prince's high school music teacher said he wasn't even the most talented person in his class, where are the rest of those people? What are they doing? Yeah, because he's, he's a guitar virtuoso. You'd think that he'd be mm-hmm. considered a genius. And he was, but he wasn't the best guy in his class. <laughs> he wasn't the most genius genius. We just, yeah, and all of those people are like selling cars or something. Now. Wow. And that's just really amazing when you think about it. I remember watching an interview with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. It was like a two-hour interview. And they talked about the fact that in school with Prince as teenagers, any instrument he picked up, he dominated anyone, right? They could dominate one. This man could dominate three. And to think that he was not the top gun of school, but he was one of the only people that broke out of the blue collar orbit is really something. And I remember reading an article in the Atlantic recently um, by a guy who's lived there for most of his life. And he talks about the fact that Minneapolis basically stays still. It doesn't get progressive at all. The segregation is interwoven at every level down to real estate. And he basically talked about a Kmart that was built, I think, in the 80s that literally was this night that sliced between two neighborhoods and how that Kmart now is a deteriorated relic. But that kind of segregation at that level still continues. So unfortunately, Minneapolis is the town 
that doesn't want to change. And something that, you know, Hannibal spoke to once was really with the trial that's happening there now um, of George Floyd's killer. You know, that town continues to be this epicenter of great change and great misery. Mm-hmm. And that's really a shame because the story that we wrote takes place four decades ago. There's, of course, a legacy way in back of that of so many failed Black musicians, and Teresa's father is one of them. That town has really been steeped in prejudicial ideological policies for the better part of a century, if not more. Yep. And so that's why, unfortunately, in a number of ways, MPLS sound still resonates today because that town is going to go down kicking and screaming into the future. Uh Wow. I can't ask anything more profound than what you just said. Um, (laughs) that is absolutely all i have that concludes anything i would have to say uh but amanda do you have any follow-up questions at all oh gosh that that conversation in particular i'm if it deserves its own podcast and obviously that's why there are many podcasts discussing that right now but in terms of the 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 book itself oh gosh i there were so many things i wanted to talk about uh I, I remember Hannibal. <laughs> am I making this up, or do you have a photographic memory? I do have a photographic. <laughs> okay, yeah. I I, I uh, was hoping we could work that into this at some point, just in terms of all the detail that everyone was balancing. I mean, popular culture and historically, um, which kind of touched on that and saying that you had, you know, a bible for for each character. But um, I guess one thing I was curious about and this goes for both of you, um, Hannibal and Joe, you know, how did you determine what details were essential to the story and what could just be Easter eggs? And how did you not get lost in, I mean, it would be really easy to fanboy out on this. Um, And I think you probably did at some points, but um, just how did you balance those, those details and determine what was essential to like Teresa's journey? Well, for me, I, I, I had a, a simple formula that I followed. I went real life over what you'd see on television uh, because it's what I do when I'm telling stories about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at uh, two, of the, two of the interviews that I did. I did interviews with one woman in her late 30s who lives in Minneapolis now, a black woman, and a white woman who was born and grew up there, uh, whose child ended up going to the same school with mine. And both of them talked about the store that you see early on, where the, the posters are put up. Both of them talked mm-hmm. about the store. The black woman talked about it as a fixture of her life. And the white woman talked about it as something that she would never, ever go in. Wow. So a place that she had never seen. Not because she had any specific antipathy to it, towards it, but because it was on the wrong side of town. It was not a chain that proliferated in her neighborhood. So when I did that, I was like, oh yeah, this has got to go in there. (laughs) Nice. If you you ask people who live in South LA, they're not going to talk about pavilions. They're going to talk about Ralph's. You know, (laughs) if you're going to talk, if you're going to go back to where I grew up in Memphis, they're not going to talk about the Kroger. They're going to talk about the Piggly Wiggly 
because that's where they live. The details where people live are more important than the details we saw on television because everybody can see those. You, the stuff that mm -hmm. only I know is the stuff that only I can write about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those kinds of details do make a difference. I know, you know, that scene that Hannibal set up in a, in a number of ways set up the whole story because it's basically the first time you're meeting Teresa in motion yeah. fully as an adult right before the night that changes her life. And so one of the things that I really had to think about, because like you said, Amanda, you could go all over the place with the cameos and with the appearances, but it was really, okay, who are the people that could really push and pull Teresa out right. of all the people in Prince's orbit, right? So mm -hmm. for example, I was, you know, I was thinking about Jesse Johnson. It just, it just didn't make sense, mm -hmm. right? It didn't make sense to see Wendy and Lisa before the revolution in a story like this. Um, it, Alexander O'Neill makes an appearance. Mm -hmm. He serves a very specific purpose. And his purpose is not just moving Teresa forward, but he gives her a perspective. And it's yeah. the first time she ever heard that perspective, right? And right. the perspective is that thing which you consider the North Star is not perfect, right? Um, and people need to hear that. And the first time they hear it, they don't want to believe it. Later on down the line, that truth will matter to them. That was essential in terms of appearances. Speaking to what Hannibal said as well, locations are very important, right? They're, they're landmarks, they're fixtures. So there's a restaurant in the story, which may or may not have been inspired by a well-known white castle in Minneapolis, <laughs> right? And the people who lived there at the time will know that they will know that place, right? So, so those kinds of things are just like really important. Those, those touch points of familiarity. Yeah, speaking to that, I mean, just the idea of using the real life elements to flesh out the story in terms of Teresa and Joe, you already talked about how you put a lot of yourself into Teresa, but at the end of the day, she is a strong woman. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what kind of influences both you and, and Hannibal had to make Teresa real? For me, it was well, my me, mom. Was my mom, you go, Hannibal. Yeah, for me, it was easy because like uh, Teresa is based on a woman that I actually know, a woman who I literally could pick up the phone and talk to right now, uh, who I worked with in the 90s at a magazine. Uh, both visually and in terms of tone, the fact that like one of the ones, one of the things that I wanted, uh, uh, I think I put it in the script and Meredith can correct me if I'm wrong because I don't remember, this is years ago now. Uh, she has her head down and looks up at people a lot uh, because this was kind of a, an affectation I noticed about this person that was just really common in everything she did. She kind of, you know, had been pushed in a lot of ways, by, by reality, a lot of ways. So she was always kind of resisting against that, always pushing back against that. 
Um, yeah, so for me, a lot of the, like Teresa was the easiest. Well, let me correct it. Teresa and Ellis were the easiest to do because they were actual people that I knew. I kind of Voltron some of the other people together in some ways. But yeah, Teresa and Ellis, those are actual people. So I'm like, yeah, I know how to do you. I, I know what you sound like. And so yeah. at the bottom of the book where we say none of the characters are based on true characters, it's a lie. <laughs> now, see, now, as long as no one comes for like their cut of the profits, <laughs> right. then we're like, we're like, okay. I mean, those two are really the heart of the story. You don't see a lot in comics. You don't see a lot of situations where you see a black brother and sister yeah. And they get along well and they will go all the way to the end of the line with each other. And mm -hmm. so that kind of heart that originated with Hannibal in terms of the dynamic between Teresa and Ellis was something that's always at the core of the entire story, no matter from the beginning to the end. And, you know, like I was saying, you know, for me, my mom would have to have been the first inspiration. My mom um, came from Jamaica. She's a nurse and just coming here when she was in, when she was in her teens as a black woman and really fighting for everything she had. And my dad died when I was young. So for a lot of my time, she was my mom and my dad, that kind of tenacity, um, that was definitely essential in terms of, of her, but basically you take these experiences from a number of people and black women have a very particular and unique kind of fight yeah. that they have to engage in every day that myself as a black man, I'm not even qualified to speak of in detail. And so that was another thing in the case of their relationship you know, Ellis never said to her that he knew better. Right. But what he always was, was the guy to say, whichever way you want to go, I'm with you. And if someone stepped to his sister, that would not be tolerated. Yeah. Yeah, they had such a, they have such a beautiful relationship. Um, and it really does carry throughout. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we... We all, we all put a lot into it. So it's just really exciting that it's finally coming out. It's pretty amazing. I know it's wild. Yep. I, I have to say one other thing that I just wanted to point out, cause I've been thinking about it, you know, for the past week that like the way that you all came together was kind of like a band being assembled, you know, it's like, it's like the story. And like, I was trying to figure out, I was like, is Fabe Fabrice, was he Teresa or is Fabe Prince behind the scenes? You totally know, pulling Prince. All the strings? <laughs> yeah. He's absolutely Prince. Okay. Then we got to say, well, who's Rob? Who's Wade? Wow. Now you start getting into some... <laughs> <laughs> this is where the fight starts. Wow. This, Who are you this, calling this, Morris? I'm not Morris. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Yeah, Mr. Day himself. Oh, man. We do, but yeah, there's there's challenges in every every depiction. <laughs> that would be that that would be fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, this is just a, an anecdote for you guys, but I I, um, I remember when pages would come in and uh, 
I'd be going through them at my desk and I'd be looking at the visuals and I'd actually start hearing prints in the background. And I was like, wow, something big is happening here that I can actually hear the music playing in my head in so much detail. And then I'd look over across the room and Fabe would be sitting at his desk, just dancing. He'd be listening to Prince in his headphones, but it was playing so loud that I could hear it outside of his headphones. That's it was filling the room. That was like the entire energy while, while they were working on this book. I mean, it was while we were working on this book, it was, it was a very visceral and it was, it was a passion project for sure. Great. Yeah, yeah. Well, we bow to Meredith and Tan, and and what they did, which just brings you know they say that amazing art makes writers look better. So I, I yeah. just still remember the very first page colored, and I was like, "Whoa, this is going to be a." Good <laughs> Tan did an amazing job. Like I was, I was so thrilled with all of the pages that she colored. They looked great. But she's got the craziest Twitter handle. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would post tweets and try to tag everyone and could not remember her handle. And then Meredith would like bring her in and I'd be like, okay, I have to write this down and put it aside so that I can tag her later. Yeah, it's like, it's like a boo-boo-boo-boo-boo. It's, it's a binary code of B's and I's. It's a lot of yeah. consonants and a few vowels. Seriously, seriously. I'm pretty sure there's an umlaut somewhere. <laughs> I think so. Thank you so very much for talking about MPLS Sound. It is out right now. It is absolutely wonderful. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add at all? I mean, for me, I'm just very glad to see this project uh, out in the world. I'm very glad to, because Prince was able to, in many ways, uh, even with what I say the problematic elements are, he was able to decolonize a musical scene that, that was very resistant to it, that was very resistant to him. And, uh, you know, that's, without that, we wouldn't have Andre Trussell, we wouldn't have Janelle Monet. A, a lot of people saw that and said, I can do that. And I'm definitely one of them. Yeah, I'm just honored to have been a part of the book and to have learned what I learned about Prince, about his generosity, about the perceptions of him after he was gone. Those echoes were very important. So I learned so much more about him as a human being and as a presence. And so I'm very thankful to have had that education. Yeah, and I would also like to add, I. Um... I felt so honored to work with this team um, and work on this. This is my first full-length graphic novel, so uh, I hope it's okay. <laughs> but you kind of sleep. It's amazing. It's more than yeah. Amazing. Everyone, everyone was so fantastic and so supportive, and um, yeah, like I just, I just really hope people like it. Everybody, thank you so very much for joining us for another episode of Human Noise. That was Hamble Taboo, Joseph P. Illich, and Meredith Laxton the creative team of MPLS Sound. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you can join us for future episodes as well. Sean, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, yeah, twist my arm. (laughs) All right, everybody. Have a fabulous weekend.